The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Jesus is talking to at least one person we know in Luke chapter 10. There may have been disciples and others around him listening. In fact, there probably were, but this is a conversation between Jesus and a lawyer. Don't think lawyer like common day lawyer. Think lawyer like first century Jerusalem lawyer. This lawyer was a Bible scholar. If you had a question about the law, the law of Moses, so, hey, uh, I, I read that if I do this, I'm supposed to offer this sacrifice. You could go consult a lawyer and a lawyer would be like, well, actually the sacrifice for this one is this and help you understand and interpret. Think kind of pastor, think scholar, think those types of things. That's what a lawyer was. And this particular lawyer has asked Jesus a question that I'm shocked not more people asked. He, he comes up, goes straight to the chase. He says, hey, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get in? How do I live forever? I, I, I've heard you preach about this. What is the trick? What do I need to do? Jesus, without missing a beat, says you gotta love God and you gotta love your neighbor as yourself. Those are two grace commandments. That's what you gotta do to inherit eternal life. Jesus is quick to go, bam, that's what it is. That summarizes the law. Now, as a lawyer, he would have understood that very, very well. Like, oh, that does actually kind of put it all in perspective. I see that. But we get that there's kind of a debate going on here. This lawyer obviously thinks highly of himself and his ability to discern the law. And Jesus is this master teacher, rabbi of the law. So the lawyer wants to push a little bit harder. And the way you pushed in the first century was by asking questions. You showed mastery of a subject, not by being able to answer questions directly, but by being able to answer a question with another question. So his first question was, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus answers that directly. Then the guy goes, okay, so love God. I kind of get that part, but love your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? And Jesus kind of gets it then. Oh, you're trying, to, you're trying to test me. Okay, I'll show you. So you're smart, but I'm smarter. So he goes, hmm, let me tell you a story. And there's a word that the NIV, that's what I read from, doesn't translate the beginning of verse 30. And it just, it's, it's translated that Jesus engaged in the debate. This has now become something kind of intellectual and Jesus is ready to engage in the debate. And he's like, let me, I'll answer your question, who is your neighbor? But let me first tell you a story. So in Luke chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus begins to answer the question, who is my neighbor then? If I'm supposed to love them to get eternal life. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, 17 miles as the crow flies, much, much further along this road. Throw out a bunch of switchbacks, a bunch of elevation change. In fact, you're going to drop 3,000 feet of elevation between Jerusalem and Jericho. So it's a downhill, a lot of switchbacks, caves, cliffs, all this stuff. There's a man going on this journey. All of a sudden, he was attacked by robbers. This lawyer presumably is from Jerusalem. Everyone knew about this pass between Jerusalem and Jericho. It was known as the blood pass because robbers loved it. They love to catch weary travelers on this road because there's lots of places for them to hide and ambush travelers. So Jesus is using a story. This didn't really happen, but the lawyer's like, yeah, okay, blood passed. Someone gets robbed. That makes sense. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. Not totally dead, half dead. So 
I don't want you to go any kind of beyond PG, but I need you to go and picture this in your mind, okay? You got a man traveling alone on a 17-mile journey. Robbers ambush him. They strip his clothes off. They beat him just for good measure, and they leave him dead, penniless, on the side of the road. Now, that's an interesting setup to a question, who is my neighbor, okay? So the lawyer's probably like, I'm not sure where you're going with this, but Jesus knew exactly where he was going. Verses 31 and 32. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, naked, bloody, half-beaten, he passed on the other side. He gave him a very wide berth. Priests were important in Jerusalem because they helped oversee the sacrifices that were made by God's people in the temple. They were servants of the Most High God. They were clergy. They were respected. They were set apart. So this priest, he is ornately dressed. He's revered in this way, but he is not going to engage in this current situation So to a Levite, they were the worship leaders, so they oversaw the temple worship, also servants of the Most High God, also well-dressed. These were people who knew the Lord and served him with their life. When he came to the place, he saw him and he passed by on the other side. Why birth? Can't go there, can't touch that. Two servants of God who claim the name of God, who help others worship God, wouldn't help a bloody naked man. Now, remember Jesus talking to an expert in the law. And we do not see any banter back and forth, but the expert in the law would have naturally assumed that while these men did leave a guy for dead, they were doing so to remain ceremonially clean. Because in the law, if you touch a dead body, they don't know if he's dead or not, but he's on his way. If you touch a dead body, you can no longer serve the Lord until you have purified yourself through quite an extensive process. So this expert of the law would have given them immediately a pass. Hey, in order to serve God better, they couldn't intervene. They couldn't go mess with this because then they would be rendered useless. Now, this argument doesn't hold water for a couple reasons. One, these men only served four weeks out of the year. That's a good job. I will take a job where you work a month and get 11 off. Okay, that's a good gig. Um, So the likelihood that they are actually on duty is slim. And then the other thing is they're coming down from Jerusalem, not up towards it. They're leaving the place where they would be doing their job. So maybe they just got done, maybe they're not on. But either way, it's highly unlikely that the reason they offered no help to this weary traveler is because they had to stay ceremonially clean. It's much more likely they offered no help because it would have been hard. And so selfishly and out of fear, they chose to ignore a human in need. Now, they may have rested on their religious laurels and said something about staying ceremonially clean, but in the end, they did nothing. Now, let's be honest. We're quick to throw judgment, right? How can you claim to love God and see someone dying in a ditch and just walk right by? In 1973, so I know this isn't very recent, but in 1973, two Christian behavioral psychologists did an experiment 
And they did an experiment in a, on a seminary campus in Louisville, Kentucky. Okay, they chose 40 of the best seminary students, and they told them, we're doing a national broadcast of your sermons. Now, not many of you are seminary students, but if two professors came and said, I want you to preach, we're going to record it, and we're going to send it out across the nation, you get pretty excited about being selected for that job. They set up days where each of them could go and record in this sound booth their sermons to be sent out across the nation. There was no nationwide sermon competition. This was all an experiment based on this parable. The two psychologists had a young girl make sure that she would be right in the path of the seminary students as they went to the sound booth to record. She was clearly in physical pain and in need of help. She needed help. 24 of the 40 seminary students saw her, acknowledged her immediate need, and stepped literally right over her to make sure they made it to the recording booth in time to record their sermon. 60% of the people stepped right over the young girl who clearly needed help. They videoed this and played it back, and I'm sure they all felt really good about themselves. But in order to keep their appointment, to do their religious duty so that the nation could hear the word of God proclaimed, they ignored the immediate need of this poor young woman. So we can judge, and we can think we wouldn't do it, but there's some science here to back up that many people will choose to ignore a pressing need to further complete what they think is more important. It's selfishness, it's fear, it happens for many reasons, but regardless of the why, we have to be aware of our human nature. So Jesus has just put two religious pillars kind of on the hot seat, and then he's going to bring a third person into this parable, verses 33 through 35. But a Samaritan, a Samaritan, now Jesus is wise in his selection of this person. He is speaking to a Jewish lawyer. Jews hate the Samaritans. Samaritans are half Jewish, but they have bred with, that's a horrible word, but they have married with Samaritans who are pagans. And so there is a humongous racial divide, a ton of prejudice. Any devout Jew would despise Samaritans, and Samaritans didn't like Jews. And now Jesus has a Samaritan front and center in this story As a Samaritan traveled, he came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him, had compassion on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. Is it likely that this good Samaritan had bandages in his pack? Nope. Did he tear the clothes off the weary traveler and bandage his wounds that way? Nope, because the robbers took his clothes. About the only explanation is that the good Samaritan tore from his own clothing the bandages that he put on this man. He didn't just do that. He poured oil on the wounds. That would have been for pain relief. And he used his wine for disinfectant. 2,000 years of medical advancements. We know that probably wasn't the best idea, but in the time, you use what you got. His own oil, his own wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took took care of him. Okay? His... 17-mile journey would have been a lot easier riding on the back of that donkey, but he chose to walk 
so the man who could not walk would be able to be transported. He got him to the first place of safety where he could further take care of his wounds in the inn. The next day, he took out two denarii. That's one denarii is roughly a day's wage. So he took out two days worth of wages. I mean, do some math in your head. How much money do you make a day that you work? Okay, that puts in perspective how much cash this man gave. It wasn't a huge sum, but if you think of what you earn in a day to give two days worth of that to a total stranger, that's, that's a good sum of money. Took out two denarii, um, gave it to the innkeeper, said, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. The weary traveler is a stranger, The Samaritan has no religious obligation whatsoever to do anything for this man, yet at great personal expense, he is the one that interjected himself into this man's story and made sure he had everything that he needed. This is an extravagant showing of mercy to a total stranger simply because there was a need. Now, the parable is done. But Jesus, remember, he's engaged in the debate now. He asks his next question, verse 36. Which of these three, the Levite, the priest, or the Samaritan, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law is done debating. Okay, He could have fired back another question But Jesus has so succinctly made his point that the expert answers the one who had mercy on him. That's who was the neighbor. He doesn't even use the term Samaritan. I think that's interesting. The simplest answer would have been the Samaritan, but he can't make himself even say the word. But he knows the correct answer. It was the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus finishing this entire dialogue and circling back around to the man's very first question, he says, then you go and do likewise. You go and show mercy to those who are in need. How do I inherit eternal life? Love God, love your neighbor. Jesus is perfectly summarizing how one is to love God. How do I love God? God, I love you, I love you, I love you. I, I declare that with my lips. I, I, I say it, but it's more than that. The way we demonstrate our love for God is in our love for others. It's an outflowing. It's something that comes because God first loved us. We see needs and we meet them even at great personal expense because of the great need that was met for us in Christ Jesus. We love, and in doing so, we love God. And Jesus is just tying a perfect little bow around a wonderful debate with a man who believed that his knowledge was sufficient for his salvation. He knew everything there was to know about God, and he knew everything there was to know about the word of God, and therefore he was with God. But Jesus flipped that all upside down and on its head because he said, no, really, your knowledge of God and your knowledge of the word is, is okay, it's sufficient, 
but it only is salvific, it only saves if it produces in you a love for God and others. This man would have been quick to hang on his wisdom. And church, as I look across the landscape, not of Summit necessarily, but of the American church, there are a lot of people who are resting their hope and their faith in their knowledge. I've got this figured out. I've sat in quite a few church services. I've actually read the Bible from cover to cover. I, I got the app on my phone. I, I'm good. I am good to go. And Jesus says, the answer to the question, the most important question that you will ever ask yourself, how do I inherit eternal life? This is actually very, very simple. You've got to love God, and your love for God has to be seen in the way that you love others. There's no other path. There's no other way. There's really no other security that you can fall into. It is the love of God and the love of others. But it needs to be visible. It needs to be visible. Having perfect Bible knowledge and failing to do what it teaches is what James will call useless faith. Useless faith. It's a form of faith, but it's dead. It's useless. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. Possibly some of these words in here were inspired by the parable of the Good Samaritan. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, they know they have faith, but they have no deeds to back it up? Can that kind of faith, can such faith save them? Interesting question. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. Basic human needs. You come across someone who's hungry and naked. Okay, sounds a little bit like our parable, right? You come across someone that looks like that, and this is what you say to them. Go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed. You bless them. You wish them a change in their current trajectory, their current circumstance. You are for them. You say, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but you do nothing about their physical needs. What good is that? The answer is, it's not good at all. But before we get all judgy, let's bring this back about ourselves, okay? How many times in a week in the world around you do you experience physical need and have empathy? Ah, oh, man, I wish, I wish that person's life could be different. Ah, oh, that's, that is just truly sad. That's just too bad. I, oh, I hope, I hope they can get some help. And you personally do nothing. Now, if you want me to get off your toes, just pull them back under your seat, okay? 
Like I'm not trying to jump on people's toes because this one's this one's getting me too. So you can you can check out right now if you want to, but I would strongly encourage you to stay in. Because what James is going to continue to say, I think, is very important. Verse 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds or by what I do. You see, you can believe that there is one God, and that's good. But even the demons, whose eternity is determined, they believe that, and it causes them to shudder. Now, James has gotten in a lot of trouble over the years because mainly this second chapter of his book doesn't line up perfectly with like, oh, Romans, the one we'll go through. But it, it actually does. And Jesus, I think, is teaching this in our parable today. Hey, followers, don't claim to love me if you're not willing to show my love to others. Don't, don't do that. Your, your belief in me, it's, it's not the right kind of belief because it doesn't move you to action. That's the kind of faith that's real. That's the kind of faith that saves. That's the kind of faith that Jesus teaches. That's the kind of faith that James teaches. That's the kind of faith that this parable is pushing us towards. And many, 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 many of us need to hear this very, very, very simple truth that is very, very, very hard to apply. Because you're going, what in the world? Of course, there's so much, there's need everywhere. There's need everywhere. Like, what am I supposed to do? Just you know, quit my job and forget about my family and just go around and look for everyone that's doing it? No, remember, who's your neighbor? Love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Those you come into contact with. Jesus is saying, live your life with open eyes, open hands, and an open heart. Just do you, but instead of turning a blind eye every time while you're doing you, you see a need right in front of you, and oh gosh, I hope, Lord bless you, bless you. No, you bless them on behalf of the Lord. This isn't easy, but it's essential. The Samaritan got it. The religious failed. As the band comes back up here, the question I want you to wrestle with, are you religious? Having a form of godliness but lacking its power? Are you religious, wanting and knowing the right things to say but not showing the love of God to others? Are you religious or are you in love with God. And the world's going to see that by the way that you interact with them. I want us to be a church that is for our community. 
okay? Here's what I mean by that. You're going to start to hear me say this a lot. We as a church are going to be four people because God is four people. Because over the last several hundred years, the church has become known for what it's against. And that's a travesty. We stand against this, and it's, it's wrong. We stand against this, and, and we should, but that can't be what we're known for. That can't be how we're identified. What are we for? We're for all people, people who look different than us, believe different than us, think different than us, pursue different goals and life things. We're for them. Why? Because God is for them. And why is God for them? Because God loves them. And if God loves them, then I have to love them too. We don't get to just be religious. We don't get to cross to the other side of the street and be like, ugh. We engage. We love. The same reason that God is for us, he's for all people. We've got to quit turning a blind eye to those around us who are in need because it's inconvenient or because it's scary. As we respond today, I just want you to wrestle with this. And we're going to, as communion in the back of the room, to remember that God loved us first, that he demonstrated this for us. He did this, okay? Jesus did this. He lived this out. So he didn't ask us to do anything he didn't do for himself or he didn't do for us. He, he did it. There's going to be people up here that would love to pray with you. If you have a need, we would love as a church to meet that. If you know someone who has a need and you want to pray for them, that's great. But then we also still need to go love them. If, if you want to talk about anything else, pray about anything else, we believe that prayer unlocks the power of God. So let's do that. But today as we worship and as we respond, I want us to wrestle with this idea of how does my faith get lived out? Do I love God and love my neighbor? And if you claim the name of Jesus, then, then that needs to be a statement that is true. But maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I don't claim the name of Jesus. I don't want anything to do with God. Then my hope and my prayer is that today, by this group of people, you feel like you are cared for, loved, and supported. And in that, you might see tangibly the love that God has for you. Because even if you don't feel it now, he does. He loves you so much. Father, help us to just genuinely respond to you today, to be your hands and feet, to open our eyes to the world around us and to love our neighbor as ourselves. God, give us the grace and the strength and the power to do that. And now just come and receive your just and due praise as we worship you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand and let's respond to him.